The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined today by Michael P. Gibson, who is the author of a fascinating new book called Paper Belt on Fire. And he's also the founder of a venture capital fund called 517. Is it just, it is just 1517. Sorry, of course, because it's the year. Yes. Uh, How stupid (laughs) of me not to get that right. It is called the 1517 Project. Let's start with that, because that is the year that Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door. And the subtitle of the book is How Renegade Investors Sparked a Revolt Against the University. Your ambition with this fund and what you've been doing for the last 12 years, certainly, is to shake up the American pursuit of knowledge, I think it's fair to say. And in doing so, you have sort of gone to war with American academia. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that a fair, fair summary of what you're doing? Right. Much like Luther, I guess I was part of the clergy. I almost became a professor. I was working towards a doctorate in philosophy and then left. That's part of the story. But eventually, yeah, find my way to Silicon Valley, where I helped uh, Peter Thiel uh, from you know PayPal fame and, and Facebook and so on. In 2010, we started a fellowship where we had two noteworthy conditions. One was that you had to be 19 and under to apply. But the other was that to receive the grant money, you could not be enrolled in higher ed. You had to, in essence, drop out, stop out. And that created a firestorm in the, in the media. We had our detractors. And that was a nonprofit program that I, I ran for, for five years. We saw some noteworthy people come out of that. We helped young men, Vitalik Buterin, some people might know the cryptocurrency Ethereum. We helped him launch that in 2013, 2014. More recently, there was a young man, Dylan Field. We helped him start a company in, in 2012 called Figma. Adobe recently bought Figma for $20 billion. So, So it was based on these kinds of stories where we were working with people without college degrees that my co-founder, Danielle Strachman, and I started 1517. And, and like you said, yeah, it's this geeky reference to the <laughs> Reformation. The historical analogy was twofold. The first thing was that we thought universities were acting like the corrupt church of the 16th century. Famously, the church was selling a piece of paper called an indulgence. Anyone who bought this piece of paper would have their sins absolved or maybe go to heaven. And likewise, today, we, we say the diploma is the modern indulgence. Without one, you go to hell. You have to pay a great fortune to to get it. And universities and all their magnificence are, are building their the new cathedrals <laughs> with the money. So that was the first level. And then the second one was just, you know, Luther was probably the first troll to post a listicle. The 95 Theses went viral. And that was only made possible by the diffusion of the printing press. And I think the role of the printing press as a technology in the Reformation is fascinating, you know, certainly by providing more Bibles in the vernacular, certainly led 
more people to want to interpret it their own way. And so similarly, we do think there might be technological trends that are in this decentralizing trend today that, you know, we think we're a part of. So, and then, and then maybe the last thing was 1517. I'd wear that as a number on a t-shirt and stuff, and people would ask me what it meant. So it was our way of stating our mission in the larger world. And the book is called Paper Belt on Fire, which comes from this essay you wrote and an extract from which I think went viral. Yeah. And the paper belt in your definition is, is academia. It's the, yeah, the paper so diplomas. I, yeah, naming things is big in, in my <laughs> book. I guess when I the book was first being written, trying to pitch it to publishers and so on, every, everyone was telling me, you know, why are you trying to tell these stories? You know, you should just be writing a policy argument about the failures of higher ed. And that just felt so boring to me. My, <laughs> my instincts are just, and my style is to just tell stories. And one of the great things about storytelling is you get to develop themes and, and naming things is big in my book, whether it's my personal name or, you know, the name of our fund. And then the name of the book itself. I know the name itself does not convey the sense of, hey, here are these two people a defrocked philosopher and my co-founder who started a charter school, the school principal, start this venture fund to back dropouts. All right, that is a business story. What is the paper belt? So, you know, a friend of mine, Balaji Srinivasan, he's kind of crazy on Twitter, brilliant guy. We were just jamming one day and and we, we saw the Rust Belt as, you know, it defines this area in the American Midwest of hollowed out industries, whether due to technological change or globalization, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, just these old industries rusted out. And we were theorizing that in the decades to come, the paper belt was going to face similar headwinds. And what the paper belt defined was this region from Washington, D.C. to Boston. So in Washington, they print laws and money and visas on paper. In Delaware, people incorporate on paper. In New York, the media, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, print on paper, Madison Avenue, advertising on paper. And then as the premier symbol of the American higher education system, Harvard and MIT and Boston print diplomas on paper. It's geographic. It's all paper-based. But the thing that stands out to me and maybe I go on too long about this in the book, is that anything that relies on paper depends on a trusted third party to validate or authenticate that that piece of paper as real. So in the case of a diploma, for example, Harvard or MIT, someone graduates, they get a diploma, and theoretically, the university has authenticated this diploma means something. Likewise, the Federal Reserve prints money, and it's the Federal Reserve that determines, you know, is this dollar real or the Treasury Department, and then how much is, you know, this is supposed to represent value. And what I think we've seen over the last, you know, three, four decades is that the trusted third parties, these institutions that validate these pieces of paper, have become less trustworthy and, and reliable. You know, whether due to corruption or just bad performance. I think we can all agree that you know, universities are printing diplomas and it's not quite clear what these things signal anymore. So I wanted to develop that theme in the book. You know, paper belts on fire, to me, it signifies on the one hand that these institutions, their performance is degraded quite a bit, but it's also our effort to reform and replace them as well. That connects, does it not, to one of your major successes, which you, you talked about very modestly there, but which is the sort of discovery of a vitalic Buterin, yep. the, the founder of Ethereum. And of course, that's all about smart contracts. 
Yep. And the exact opposite of paper, the sort of answer to the paper belt is Yeah, I think the contract. ingenious thing that Satoshi Nakamoto invented was this method of bookkeeping that required no bookkeeper. Yeah. That is astounding. So that these ideas, yeah, I, I've sort of extended from the cypherpunks and, and the crypto fanatics who came to see these trusted third parties as security holes. And when Satoshi designed Bitcoin, he wanted to create a way to have a system of money and accounting that did away with the Federal Reserve. And Vitalik took that to the next step thinking, oh, maybe we can use the same system, the blockchain, and repurpose it to replace institutions that have a centralized trusting authority figure we're supposed to trust, and then instead use a distributed system. It can be quite complicated, but the overall aim is how do you get rid of these trusted third parties? It's still early days. Like, like I, I tend to be a purist and thinking if you cannot point to a, a third party that you are somehow subverting or getting rid of, then your crypto idea probably isn't worthwhile. So all these like terrible coins and so on. I think that is Ponzi finance. But, you know, the, the core ideas are still early phase. And I think in the next decade, we still we will see these forms of coordination emerge where people are creating smart contracts. I mean, why have a hypothetical social contract when you can have a real one with people around the world built on some blockchain? That does sound very intriguing to me. And, and I wanted to develop that in the book a little bit. I love your very honest admission that you did not buy a single ether, despite the fact that you were the person who played such a crucial role in its in its success. Worst financial decision in my life. <laughs> um, one of my friends has made millions. And yeah, my colleague, Danielle, she, she always jokes, like, how come he's not buying you drinks? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, without wanting to sound too sort of worthy about it, for you, it's it's bigger than just financial gain, isn't it? It's about something, it's about yeah, human progress. That's right. So another idea in the book is... Uh, you know, made famous by my old boss and some other people is the idea that the rate of progress has slowed down. You know, we can be dazzled by smartphones and the internet, but when you look at other sectors, the rate of progress just hasn't been great since the early 1970s. And that could be in, you know, the field of education, healthcare. We've, it's, it's not that we're making zero progress, but it's that things have slowed down. In the case of, of health, I mean, maybe a pure number that can be, you know, it doesn't tell the whole story, but if you just look at life expectancy at birth in 1900 in the US, that was somewhere around 45 years of age. By 1980, it was at 72, 73. And, and now, you know, from 1980 to, to the present, it's only about three years more, four years more. And it's decreased over the last five years because of COVID and these deaths of despair in the US. So you see massive progress to 1980 there. And then stagnation afterwards. So that's the background. You know, we could argue about that theory. It's certainly something I believe in, but it is motivating what we do to try to get people to the frontier of science and technology as fast as possible, because I think things have just stagnated because these institutions have rotted and so on. And you pin that date at 1971. The, the economists have a number called total factor productivity. This is their you know, sophisticated analysis of, you know, what, what are the outputs given some level of inputs? And if you look at 1971, that certainly slows down, that, that we're not getting as much as we used to. The productivity gains have slowed down. So that, that's in the data. But I think qualitatively as well, like a, a good example would be my mom was raised by her grandmother. Her grandmother was born in 1885. That meant that woman 
when she was born, she saw the invention of the radio, the car, the elevator, skyscraper, planes, and she lived to 1980 to see a man on the moon. Whereas, you know, in the course of my lifetime, I've seen smartphones and the internet, but, you know, not in terms of the number and the magnitude, not as many big innovations as my great grandmother saw. So I think that's a good way to characterize it. And yeah, 1971 is strange. I mean, there was the oil crisis, so maybe energy plays a big role in this. I think that's still open to debate is what the causes are. But everyone agrees there's something about the early 70s where something shifted in the world, especially in the West, where we just became less creative and less productive. And to a large extent, from what I understand from what you're saying, that the Silicon Valley and the great tech revolution has sort of, while giving us all these great blessings, has covered up our acceptance that we are stagnating. And you start the book with this very fascinating exchange between you and Bill Gates, who takes great offense. Well, yeah, that's because I think these smartphones and computers and communication technologies have become so dominant that that is now what technology means. If I say tech in the media or whatever, that refers to the big tech companies. Yes. But if you go back to, I, I studied the classics, and if we go back to the original meaning of technology, tech day, in the Greek, it just meant a craft, a way of doing things. And so a techne could refer to shipbuilding or governing. And so I think in my conversations with Gates, what came out is just how dominant this idea of technology is just referring to computers is that, you know, it's pretty rare for people to think of something like education as a social technology, or, you know, we could think of different ways of coordinating and working together, or even conceiving of healthcare, energy, education, that these are, in fact, you know, there are better and worse ways of doing these things. There's a lot of improvement left to go. And so when I'm in this argument with Gates, I think he, in his mind, he wanted to talk about how the developing world has improved, how you know, the life expectancy and so on is, is improving. And, and that's all true. And that is progress. But to me, I wanted to also refer to, you know, the things we can't even imagine now across all these fields. And I think once he saw that I was referring to that, he understood. But but I think, you know, the general idea of progress is out of fashion, but I like to see a return to, we don't have to believe in Whig history to also believe that, yes, things can be better. And you're generous towards Gates, you know, you point out a lot of his successes, but it is telling, is it not, his angry reaction to you at first? That, I mean, <laughs> for you, you know, if you are these sort of Luther-like Protestants tearing down the church, I mean, yeah. Bill Gates is the church in many ways, isn't he? Yeah, as a hard-charging and innovative entrepreneur as he is, I have been shocked in a sense as how conventional his philanthropy is. I mean, he's done a lot of great work in the world, but he, he does seem to take the existing institutions for their word and want to work within them. As you can tell, I'm quite doubtful of their efficacy or even their ability to address some of these problems. So so I think that that's probably a lot of that tension there between me and Mr. Gates. But yeah, I don't I, I think it's it's hard to do new things in the world. And even in the world of philanthropy, you risk looking like an outcast if you do something so radically different. Well, let's talk about the, the sort of anti-Gates, if you like, Peter Thiel. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's the hero of this story in many ways because he is this very rich man, yeah. amazing entrepreneur who is willing to back and take extraordinary gambles, many of which have have paid off. Could you give us a little bit about how you came to be involved with him and what he's like? Well, yeah, right. I think think Peter is just one of these people who is portrayed 
just negatively or maliciously in the mainstream media. There was a book, you know, purportedly calling itself a biography that came out in the last year. It's just so full of so many factual errors and inaccuracies and so on. And Peter's often portrayed as this Vulcan rationalist, unfeeling Gordon Gecko. And having worked with him for a period of time, I, I'm just taken aback by this. So to tell my story certainly involved telling you know Peter's part in it. And I wanted to portray him as the person that I know, which is as this, you know, not a purely Vulcan logical thinker, but someone who's intuitive and creative and funny at times and, and uh, very contrarian. I, people do know, know him in that sense. You know, I don't want to, it sounds pompous, but like the book, I did want it to be a bit of a meditation on creativity because it's like how, it, when I looked into the research literature in psychology, it is appalling how little we know about creativity. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know how to cultivate it. There are all these lame studies where they like put, you know, they ask people how many different uses they can come up with for a brick. And then they correlate that number with, you know, what they do in life. And it's just like, this is so silly. Yeah. There was a great documentary of the Beatles that came out about the Let It Be album. And I think one of the things that astonished people about it was that for the first time we saw on camera, Paul McCartney out of thin air conjure one of the songs we all know and love, whether it was Get Back and he's working on Let It Be. So to see creativity in action just really astonished people. So in the book, you know, Peter to me is just like this really dynamic, creative person. He has his own thoughts about creativity that are very unique and idiosyncratic. And I, I wanted to portray that as best as I can. So it's like, why on earth would Peter hire me? I, I was a dropout PhD. I got a job at MIT's Technology Review, the magazine, so journalist for a time. Why on earth would Peter hire me to work at his hedge fund first on the fellowship and so on? And I came to see, you know, Peter derived one of these heuristics for thinking about who to hire and who to fund and creativity in general from one of his mentors, of all people, a French literary theorist and anthropologist, René Girard. And when Girard, you know, he, he canvassed the mythologies of the world. His interest was in mob mentality, crowd dynamics, scapegoating. And Girard in his studies, when he looked at, at scapegoating, he wanted to know why did the crowd pick this particular person to sacrifice? And in mythologies, what's interesting is this insider and outsider dynamic. In the words of uh, David Byrne from The Talking Heads, the scapegoat is often strange, but not a stranger. Meaning, they are not so, if there's a social crisis at hand and we not have to find someone to blame, that person can't be so foreign that they are from a different place and just not related to the crisis. But on the other hand, neither can there be so much an insider that they're part of the king's court or whatever to be blamed. It's always someone, these boundary figures, these people on the borderlands who fit in but don't fit in. And Peter developed this as a heuristic to think about who to back in his investments who to hire. And so for me, I, I thought I was like, yeah, why did he hire me? So I wanted to portray how I was an insider and an outsider as well. But then I arrive at his firm and it's just full of people. We were working at a hedge fund and no one had a degree in finance. There were English lit people, there were nuclear engineers, statisticians, but not one MBA among us. So I saw that. That's interesting to me is like, okay, how, you know, it's very unusual corporate office. And I thought I, I'd do my best to try to portray that from a first person perspective. 
I was interested that you said that the media always gets Peter Steele wrong and, and you included George Packer in his book, The Unwinding, hmm. because, I mean, it's a very brilliantly written book, that. Oh, I, yeah, I, I admire Packer. I don't want to criticise him. <laughs> but when I first heard about Teal, I sort of understood him to be this libertarian, you know, seasteading, building cities right. in the sea and all that. And I, I think people sort of lumped him in, perhaps Packer did this too, in this sort of wacky world of libertarianism, yeah, when you I, I was at, there when when Packer showed up at the office. I was impressed. Peter gave him access. He came into our research and trade meetings and so on. So in Packer's book, when he's describing these people in the room, I'm one of them. But yeah, there's this idea, and and Peter certainly has hired libertarians. But you know, the people I worked with uh, were were across the board. It was really the thing that mattered to Peter, and libertarians fit this category to some extent. Is have you been a someone? to be the only person in the room who believed in a weird idea and defended it. And that, you know, can draw all sorts of different people so long as, as there was evidence that was true. So Packer, Kara, and Emily Chang in her book on Silicon Valley and Packer, I, I mentioned in the book, they all want to portray Peter as creating these robots who are just, you know, worse derivative versions of himself, these sort of Vulcan libertarians out of Stanford. Mm. And that's just not factually true. So, you know, I certainly have, have my background, but there were other people I work with, I talk about in the book that didn't fit. I mean, there, there were Democrats, there were Keynesian Krugmanites on staff. There were followers of John Rawls, but we were all uh, weirdos in our own way. Well, I suppose the, the René Girard stuff, the you know, the mimetic ideas about mimetic behavior points towards even a spiritualism. Yes, that's the other thing about Peter. I think the 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 wider world doesn't know much about, and even Silicon Valley, for that matter, is that he is a Christian and he believes in God. You know, so <laughs> there are organizations that Peter has donated money to in the Bay Area that are quite Vulcan logical rationalists. So you can think of these groups devoted to thinking about the existential risk of artificial intelligence. Those people, I think, were surprised because Peter's not very public about his faith. But I think they are surprised when they learn that that he believes in God. And, you know, that's interesting to me that in the press doesn't talk about that either. So I wanted to, in, in my book, I, I just wanted to talk about the person I interacted with. And, and that's who I saw. The book, you point towards all of these great successes, but um, I'm more interested in failure, really. So I was, <laughs> yeah. I was wondering, would you tell us about the kind of the biggest failures you had? Yeah, without, I don't want to name names, but, you know, we, we certainly learned a lot over the years working with uh, young, brilliant people. One was to over-index on the sort of mad genius, which I think is a real concept. But we, we came across people who were certainly gifted when it came to the technology, the engineering, the math, but they they didn't have the social skills to work with other people or work with customers or raise money. So we came to see that there was much more required of people when it came to starting businesses. Mm. But even that said, is like you can have all the all the character traits that we look for in a great founder. And you know, whether by chance or just timing or things don't work out. So over the years, I, I don't know the numbers, but you know, some small handful of, of the Teal fellows did go back to college just because they wanted to hang out with friends and you know, do something different. But a large number didn't. And a large number, you know, if their startup didn't work out, they, they had the skills to get hired somewhere else. 
And we see this beyond the fellowship and what we do at 1517, because, you know, not every, I don't want to insist that every college degree is a vocational degree, but the clearest case where the college degree is becoming more and more meaningless is in, in the area of, of engineering. I met so many younger people where they've tried different things, but they just have the skills to get hired anywhere. They don't even need a LinkedIn anymore, or even for that matter, a there's a website called GitHub where people can post their code. It's voted on by their peers. And on that site, they could have Darth Vader as an avatar, but they're voted by their community as the best coder. And I've seen these people get jobs you know, as interns. They make $37,000 for the summer, or they're making, you know, well beyond six figures and they have no degree. So I think that's clearest in the cases where the skill level that someone has is, is measurable. With the intangibles, it's more difficult. But the people we've worked with, the failures where the companies blew up or didn't work out, I think they, in the best cases, they still learned a lot and they've gone on to do other things. Well, in the book, you list various things that you know, what makes a great entrepreneur. And one that interested me was edge control. Could you define yeah. what that is for our, for our listeners? Yeah, I think there is certainly an element of courageous risk-taking when it comes to entrepreneurship, but there's also this Aristotelian golden mean that I, I wanted to capture where you're not so bold that you blow money on some crazy idea and, oh, well, that's done. And on the other hand, you're not so cautious and tepid that you don't risk any money at all and learn anything. And so I took this term from, there's a great book on the sociology of risk-taking about edge work, they call it. I think it's a term from either uh, extreme sports or even this weird act. I guess there are people who break into buildings and climb the rooftops at night for fun. So there's a study about the types of people who did this. So I, I took that term edge control. It is sort of this idea of whether you're on a snowboard or a surfboard or even a motorcycle in a turn, there's some level to the edge that you have to maintain between order and chaos. And what I mean by edge control is like, are you the type of person who more than withstands or tolerates this level of skid and spark, but to some degree relishes it and can do it day after day after day and always hit that golden mean where you're not you know, so brash that you verge off into the frontier of fraud like Elizabeth Holmes or Adam Newman, and neither are you so cautious that you never get started to begin with. And presumably it's quite an intangible quality. I wonder whether you must have interviewed and dealt with so many people from the fellowship and now with your fund. Have you found a trick or two for identifying people who have that control, that ability to take great risks, but also keep the balance? Right. When we started the Teal Fellowship, we were too imitative of colleges. We had an application. We asked for things like grade point average and what school you went to, test scores. And in the event, over time, we saw that those were not helpful in predicting success out in the wild when it came to building something new. Some things became negative signals, weirdly, like this one science prize was <laughs> the people who won that science prize tended to be brittle when they were out in the wild. But the, the, the number one thing about the applications that I didn't like was that they were just a snapshot in time. I saw them as fruit that started off fresh and got rotten quickly because people can change. They pivot and come up with a different idea a month later. But more to the, the point about character is that it's so hard to assess someone's character in a meeting or two. I never want to be in a Shark Tank situation where I have to judge someone's character and I've never met them before. So mm. what I came to see is I had to know people over time. 
And we do things to, to help with that. I'm out on the road a ton. I live in hacker houses. I visit campuses. I talk to people. We give out smaller grants just so people can like build a prototype of something. But that gives us a chance to see them over time. And so if I've really known someone for six months or a year, and now they're pitching this idea, I do have a better sense of, of their character because I have more points to form a line. But that said, is, is I think it just takes you recognize this sort of family resemblance in these character traits. And then over time, it becomes like the, you know it when you see it, intuitive recognition. You talk about sort of wanting to have a sort of punk style. Do you think there is this punk element to if the people you know are wrong, don't like it, there must be something good about it? (laughs) Yes. Like one of our biggest antagonists over the years was Larry Summers, former president of Harvard, treasury secretary. And I have to say there was something you're right. Since he hated us so much, he called the the fellowship program the most misdirected philanthropy of the decade. I was about to read out that quote. Yeah, that was... (laughs) That was when I knew you were. On, you must have known you were onto something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if Larry Summers hates us, we're onto something. <laughs> I, I, I think that can be <laughs> extrapolated to a good general truth. You know, punk isn't always the right music to play, but there is something about the the rebellious side to it that I enjoy. So, you and Daniel Strackman, Danielle Strackman, how did how did you go from the Teal Fellowship, which was for under twenties? Yep. First of all, actually, how did you and Teal settle on twenty as the the Oh, man, yeah. Well, when we started the fellowship, the idea was that maybe younger people were taking, you know, and and if you look at the graduating class of all the top schools in America, especially the Ivy League, something like 40 to 60% of all graduates are taking jobs in finance, management consulting. And these seem like, I mean, they're well paying jobs, maybe high status, but they're really boring and not very inspiring. And so one of the ideas was that because the cost of college is so high in the United States, that people are accumulating debt. And because they have this debt, they can't pursue some passion they have, whether that's you know novel writing or art or even you know starting a business. And instead, they have to take a safe but well-paying job. So when, when we came up with the idea of 20, the thought was, well, maybe at that point, people haven't accumulated all this debt, they're still free to try something different. But probably, and then that's one thing. And then the next thing could have been just Peter's background thinking. He's certainly been an antagonist to universities for a long time. In the 90s, he published a book on identity politics in university called The Diversity Myth. He started the Stanford Review. So, okay, he's always been a critic of universities. He thought about starting his own once he had made some substantial wealth. So he had thought about this, but I think what had been clear by 2010 was, especially working with Mark Zuckerberg, but other, he had met a number of people who were in their early 20s and who had started extraordinary things. And so I think it was that thinking that led, okay, to 20, let's try it out. You know, it's with that constraint on the types of people we were looking for, it's amazing to me that we found anyone at all. So that was a grant making program. I ran that for five years. That program still exists but it's limited to 20 people a year. But by 2015, Danielle Strackman and I, we thought, wow, you know, this is a nonprofit. We're just giving out these no string grants. We could be making money on this. This could be an investment thesis. So we set out to to raise our venture capital fund. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book is I realized there aren't many behind the scenes accounts of what venture capital is. There's a book from the early 2000s called E-Boys about the fund that invested in the eBay. 
Tom Perkins of Kleiner Perkins, a famous VC fund, wrote a memoir called Valley Boy. It's very gossipy. He married the romance novelist, Daniel Steele. Oh, and then Sebastian Malaby had a book come out recently called The Power Law. And each, each chapter is about a different fund. But no one has ever written really a first person behind the scenes account of what a VC does, how they get started. So I wanted to take people behind the curtain and show them what that's like. A lot of the book is about me and Danielle out there talking to investors, pitching them. And it is a wild west. It's pretty crazy, especially when, you know, the two of us have no background that a normal venture capitalist has. We look different. We are different. And our mission is very unique. This fact that we decided to only back people who don't have college degrees is very unusual. So I wanted to tell that story, like, who are the investors who would take us seriously? What did we have to do to bring that out? So I hope people enjoy that business story. It's interesting you say that Peter Thiel thought about starting up his own university and then decided perhaps too many obstacles to it or just wouldn't work. And that, for a non-American, strikes me as quite strange because... Even though I can see that there's a sort of, you know, elite stagnation in the, the Ivy League and so on, I've always thought one of the great advantages of American education was that you had this ability to set up new universities and you had enough philanthropists who are willing mm. to do it and people have tried. Right. But it doesn't seem to be working or certainly it hasn't caught. Yeah, there are, there are three parts to that, I think. One was that it is true in the past. You look at Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago was founded by Rockefeller, Stanford University. There was a great era when new universities cropped up. I think what Peter found was that, one, everything depends on prestige and exclusivity now. And to bootstrap that from nothing is very, very difficult. You know, everyone wants to get into Harvard and Yale and Princeton, but, you know, the, the new school is not going to attract the same caliber of people. The next thing would be just the, the regulatory thicket in the accreditation process. That's not what it used to be. Now it's just like, by the time you make it through that, you're going to look like any other university, especially when it comes to the types of hires you can make. And then the last thing is, is more on a theoretical level. There's a debate in economics about, you know, why, why does a college degree pay? You know, there's a substantial difference between the average wages of someone who has a college degree versus someone who does not. And economists have you know, it's still contested. There are, you know, mainly two different camps as to why the degree pays more. The traditional view is that you learn skills in college, that you go to school and your professors impart these skills to you. And then when you graduate, those skills are worth something in the labor market. But the contending view called the signaling theory is that, you know, what you're learning, you're not actually learning skills in college at all, or few. I mean, we could say reading, writing, research, but but by and large, the value of the college degree is actually because it signals something about you. Yes, you have the cognitive skills, the intelligence, but an IQ test could tell that. What it signals more is that you're willing to undertake a four-year project at great cost and take down assignments, complete them and finish them and do what the authorities say. And I think the labor market is rewarding people for that. So I think, you know, Peter and myself, you know, it's like if you just build another university that adds to this arms race in the signaling theory, that's not really helping society as a whole either. That also points well, someone else you mentioned in the book, Jonathan Chait, who I think mm. is keen on this idea that America is hardening into a kind of class system through universities. Yeah. And that's always been something that is meant to be antithetical to the American ideal is, is the class system, the 
that you can't make it if you don't belong to a certain group. Yes. You know, I only touch on certain things, but I, I think it is historically interesting that the United States has always prided itself on being, you know, very democratic in the sense of not having an aristocracy or a history of that. But I do think what has emerged over the last 40 years is hardening into a class structure where, you know, either you have a BA and if you don't, you go to hell or you are tattooed with dunce on your head for the rest of your life. I'm not quite sure about the UK. I know certainly in, in Germany, Switzerland, it's different. But in the US, we denigrate the trades. If you don't have a college degree, it's just assumed you don't have a brain. And yeah. I, I think that's awful. And I'd like to see that change. Well, I suppose that's one of the things I took away from reading your book is that there's a lot of optimism there because you know, for the risk of sounding like a, a libertarian maniac, capitalism always finds a way of breaking through. And that's what you're doing, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I hope we show the way. I, I, it's certainly a small niche of people who are capable of, let's say, starting new companies or, uh, you know, working in technology. The pushback I get sometimes is people will say, oh, well, you know, this is all well and good for the Navy SEALs and the Olympians you work for. So, you know, these really smart people or creative or what have you, but what, what do you tell the average American? And then it's like, okay, yeah, sure. I think it is very hard to establish yourself without the degree, but I think that we can work to, to make this a, a real viable option, whether on the policy level or just on the cultural level. But I hope my book and the people we work with serve as role models of some kind. I mean, everybody talks about the cultural war all the time, but do you think what you're doing might provoke a way of or provoke the ability to get past the cultural because what you're not you're not really talking about you know cultural stuff here and yet it does connect to a lot of what's going on right yeah I don't talk about in the book although I think it's true that the American university has become quite radical I mean it just the out balance, but you know, I, I don't know what it, you look across the different fields and so on. It could be something like ninety percent Democrat, ten percent Republican, or maybe even ninety nine percent. So I think at their most extreme, universities have become woke madrasas, these ideological training grounds. But I don't want to touch that on the book at all mm. because I'm really addressing that college isn't what we think it is. That appearance and reality are quite different than people that they should know that this degree isn't signaling what they think it does. And I found now that the book's out there, it's interesting. I know a lot of center left people who have read it and they really enjoy it surprisingly. And they don't even, it's like I present these radical ideas and I think because they're not labeled in the cultural war, it doesn't set off the trigger warnings for them or something. So I'm quite pleased that I was able to thread that needle because I think we should have a wider debate about education that doesn't you know, draw people into fighting about, oh, what should be taught and what shouldn't be taught. Let's just talk about, are we teaching anything at all? Mm. And also the extent to which, I mean, Dominic Cummings, who I don't know if you know, do you know who Dominic Cummings is? I do, yeah. yeah. So he famously called them freaks and misfits. He said he wanted more freaks and misfits in government. Oh, right, yeah. And that caused a lot of, a bit of a stir. But I suppose what, what he was getting at was that particularly in this age of, technology of very high advanced computer technology, mm. the people who come up through the system aren't necessarily the brightest and the best because you've had all these incredible resources online right. that people can use. Yes, I think to undertake that that long journey from K through 12 in the United States 
for, you know, on this assembly line, colossal assembly line to this vague pre-professional degree in higher ed to get accepted into these top schools, to maybe get the Rhodes Scholarship or Marshall or whatever. By the time you come out of these things, I mean, what you're prepared for is a high ranking role in the nomenclatura of the United States, the civic elite. What you're not prepared for is how to invent new things or how to undertake great risk in a project that might take 10 years. So I do think, you know, these elite channels have not only excluded people, but I think it has also homogenized the people who come out of it. And if we do want to maintain some level of dynamism in the West, I think we have to do more to encourage the misfits to help them find their ways. When I think about it, it's really a crisis of trust that the older people of the world don't trust the younger people to do things that are worthwhile. You see this most clearly in grant making, where you know it's only after someone gets their undergrad, PhD, postdoc, by the time they're 38, then they finally earn the, the trust of the system to run their experiment. But I think we need to trust younger people to do stuff. Let's cut them some checks, give them grants, go wild. But our current system isn't set up for that. So to, to go back to that theme, I, I do think it's important to think about why are individuals creative, but I think we also need to under, understand like what makes a cluster creative, like Silicon Valley, as opposed to Boston or Atlanta, what makes a nation creative, whether it's compared to other places, you know, why is America so dynamic compared to even Canada or, you know, somewhere else? And then even the, the same country across time. Maybe America did used to be more creative than it used to be. So what's driving these things? I think, you know, the, the radical libertarians are always about the greatness of the individual, the Randian hero. And I think we can all agree that's a myth, but that doesn't mean individuals aren't important. And then the left is obsessed with movements and governments and nations and so on. I think it's all important. And I think not enough scrutiny is given to what makes each one of these levels creative. Talking about policy, I mean, in terms mm. of government policy, then, there, there is a medium ground, isn't there, between letting individuals thrive and governments supporting programs that enable individuals to thrive? That's absolutely right. I mean, look at in the United States, the NSF, NIH, these grant making bodies that the government runs. I mean, they can be quite valuable in promoting scientific research. But boy, have they calcified. I can't remember the exact number, but like the average rate, age of a recipient of an NIH grant is in their late 30s. You know, where are the grants to the, the radical, unorthodox 25-year-olds? Some of the research I came across, Benjamin Jones, an economist at Northwestern, studied the age at which people receive grants or win patents or win Nobel Prizes over the last 100 years. And, and one of the interesting findings of his is that you look at 1900 to the present, the average age at which all these things occurs has only risen. And maybe the main explanation is that, well, the burden of knowledge is greater. So to get to the frontier, you just have to learn more. You do have to spend 10 years in school before you reach the frontier. But I don't think that's true. So I think that we could reform governments to come up with different styles of giving grants, different ways of evaluating them. I think institutional reset is important. So it's if you look at NIH funding, it's almost it's starting in 1980. It's almost as if the same people have just been awarding themselves grants over time. So there has to be a way to refresh these 
organizations so that, you know, new, new people can think of new ideas and fund new things. It just seems to be the case that they're, they're in their elderly state right now and they're sclerotic. Do you think, I mean, obviously the Reformation was triggered, the Counter-Reformation, the Catholic Reformation, which was in many ways as important or more important for, do you think in your way, you know, you could trigger institutions to think more creatively? Is that already happening? Certainly at the university level, we've seen more and more universities try to promote entrepreneurship or they've started their own venture funds and things of that nature. So they're starting to get there. I think it's going to be hard for them to get back in the shape, but we'll see what happens. There are also other, like Joe Lonsdale is a famous, another venture capitalist. He and some other people, Neil Ferguson, the historian, some other high profile academics are starting a new university in Texas, the University of Austin. I wish them well. I think based on the reasons I gave before, I think they'll face some struggles. But I do think it's great to see, you know, we're starting to see more things tried. At the level of governments, oh man, there's just so much dysfunction, it's hard to know if we'll ever reform. And it seems to be such a low priority, but I hope, you know, our stories can can inspire and instruct. I'd just like to finish by asking you a little bit about yourself. Mm. I mean, you describe yourself in the book as a romantic anarchist. <laughs> yes. Do you stand by that label? Yes, I do. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly reasonable, though. I, I, I kind of poke fun at myself. I just believe in, in the power of the human spirit. And when it's liberated, you know, I, I have an optimistic view of humanity. So I, I distrust authority. I think that's the anarchist bent is to always question, you know, who is this authority? And then when it comes to just having been steeped in the in the world of the cypherpunks and so on, I do see potential for real social contracts as opposed to hypothetical ones. So I'm not a lawless, bomb-throwing anarchist, more in the sense of I wish people could find, you know, the place where they belong. And, and maybe we'll see more diversity in the world where, you know, people find a home in a, in a city-state or a nation <laughs> that more suits their their values than than just randomly being born somewhere. I think that's a vision of the world I, I would support. But I realize, you know, my ideas are quite radical. I don't pretend that, you know, I take these radical positions in education or even when it comes to crypto and so on. But I understand that it's outside the norm and, and maybe I can push people in my direction. And I want to allow that there's some you know, potential that I'm just crazy. So <laughs> I'm not going to say, you know, anarchy for everyone. I'm a romantic in the sense, though, that I believe in the power of the imagination and creativity to create a better world. But your story is quite romantic in the sense that you wanted to be a writer. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, you've ended up being extremely creative, but by ending up being a venture capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny how life works out. <laughs> you know, to use the cliche only in America, it's, but it's true because... You know, yeah. in Britain, I mean, J.D. Vance, for instance, was a, was a writer who turned into a venture capitalist. Right. I mean, that sort of thing doesn't really happen in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that taps into that question. I mean, let's assume it's a good thing. Why is it the case that, you know, Elon Musk, if he was born in South Africa or if he lived in maybe even Germany or France, I don't think he'd become a rocket builder. I think there is something about the United States that that is special. And, and remains so, even though it's slowed down quite a bit. I do think it is important to wonder why some places are conducive to this dynamism more than others. And, and once we, you know, maybe there's no recipe when it comes to policy institutions 
and so on. But I think we can aim for a better understanding. Michael P. Gibson, thank you very much for coming on to Americano. It's been a great honor having you on. And um, I wish you all the best with your... Well, thanks for reading the book, buddy. I appreciate it. Big fan of the show. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. Thank you.